Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Do you enjoy food and eating it? Well, today we're going to talk about the most important cabinet position you've maybe never heard of. Secretary of the United States Department of Agriculture. Who is Tom Vilsack? Okay, that's a tough one. Um... Okay, to be fair, it's a hard question that I literally have no idea how I would answer. But that's Tom Vilsack in Iowa back in 1998. In 2021, Vilsack was confirmed to lead the United States Department of Agriculture for the second time. He's Biden's pick to get America's food system to net zero, meaning agriculture that doesn't contribute to climate change, at least in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Whether or not that's even possible remains to be seen, but unlike a lot of President Biden's still very new administration, Tom Vilsack is a politician who's been around for a long time. And from climate justice, to racial justice, to economic justice, there's a lot to talk about. So, who is Tom Vilsack? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power through the stories of people who have it. Today, two-time Department of Agriculture head, Tom Vilsack, master of all things grown and farmed, and ninth in line for the presidency. But if we get down to the ninth guy, I feel like we'll have bigger things to worry about. Like I said at the top of the episode, you don't typically think of the Secretary of Agriculture as being very powerful. But power isn't always where you might think it is. So let's look at Tom Vilsack. Unlike so many politicians who talk about growing up poor and bootstraps and whatnot, Tom Vilsack's story is actually pretty inspiring, even for me. He actually has a pretty compelling personal life story. He was actually born into a Catholic orphanage in Pittsburgh, um, was adopted as an infant by the Vilsacks. That's Kathy Obradovich. My name is Kathy Obradovich, and I am the editor of Iowa Capital Dispatch. You might hear a hum in the background, which is because Kathy's roof literally caved in, uh, but she was kind enough to take the time to talk to us anyway. Thanks, Kathy. Tom Vilsack wasn't born in Iowa. 
He was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on December 13, 1950. His birth mother, a college student, placed Tom in an orphanage where he would be adopted by the Vilsacks, Bud and Dolly. The Vilsacks were a once wealthy family falling on hard times. Bud's grandfather was Leopold Vilsack, who was a partner in the Pittsburgh Brewing Company, which still exists today and which, in the 1900s, had revenues in the millions. According to the Sioux City Journal, that's Sioux City, Iowa, Bud Vilsack inherited a million dollars and a real estate business when his father died. But that business failed. And Tom told Sioux City Journal, quote, I think my father got used to a living standard that was probably well beyond what his income was worth. And so you start off life living in an orphanage, and then you go into a family that's got everything, and then slowly over time, dad started losing everything. And mom started drinking. Back to Kathy Obradovich. His mother, Dolly Vilsack, was a homemaker, but she was also an alcoholic. And Tom Vilsack would later talk about how she would go on binges. And I guess she would do this in the attic because he's talked about remembering the sound of bottles of alcohol rolling around, uh, you know, above in the attic. According to Tom Vilsack, Dolly would disappear for weeks at a time into an apartment previously occupied by a nanny. And yeah, Vilsack said he does remember hearing bottles dropped on the floor above his head. Tom Vilsack, by his own account, was a pretty lonely kid. He was bookish and kind of chubby, not that athletic. Probably couldn't bring his friends home because he wasn't sure if mom was going to be sober. And, and to this day, I would say he's unusually introverted for a politician, especially at his level. And unfortunately, it wasn't just his mom. His dad suffered from alcoholism, too. Eventually, when Tom was 13, Dolly would move out of the house completely. Vilsack almost flunked out of high school. But surprisingly, his parents got sober and got back together. And Tom managed to graduate with good enough grades to go on to college. It was a real turning point in his life uh, that brought him to Iowa. The turning point was his wife, meeting his now wife, um, then she, her name was Christy Bell. Um, she was from, from a prominent family in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, which is in southeast Iowa. And they met at Hamilton College. And there's kind of a cute story uh, that they both tell um, that Christy was just having lunch in the cafeteria when this young man comes up to her. And I guess this passed for a slick pickup line back in 1968. But he said, hey, Nixon or Humphrey? And he was, of course, referring to Richard Nixon or his Democratic opponent. And uh, Christie, of course, says Humphrey. And then probably, my guess is, Tom didn't have to say anything else for the next 30 minutes or so because Christie Bilsack, uh, then Christie Bell, was as outgoing and extroverted and garrulous as anyone I've ever met. And certainly, um, she wouldn't have probably let Tom get another word in edgewise. So, so maybe a match made in heaven, I don't know. Vilsack told the Pittsburgh Quarterly, quote, I was sort of a wilted flower before I met Christy, and she was sort of the fertilizer and the water. Tom ended up getting his law degree, went to work with Christy's father um, at his law firm in Mount Pleasant, Iowa. And Mount Pleasant uh, is aptly named. It is a very pleasant little town in southeast Iowa. About 8,500 people today. Um, it's home of Iowa Wesleyan College. 
Mount Pleasant is also the home of the Midwest Old Settlers and Threshers Association, which has a reunion every Labor Day weekend that's like the juggalo gathering of farming equipment. For a guy like Vilsack, you can probably see the appeal of Mount Pleasant. He could have had a very nice life and a very nice career just as a small-town lawyer. Um, He was engaged in his community. Um, He took the lead in raising about three-quarters of a million dollars for a new sports complex in Mount Pleasant in 1978, for example. But instead, a very American tragedy changed his life, just days before his 36th birthday. Everything changed the night of December 10th of 1986, and that is when a disgruntled resident of Mount Pleasant, a guy named Ralph Davis, went into the city council meeting and opened fire with a handgun and killed the mayor, um, who was named Ed King, and injured two city council members. Here's the New York Times on December 12th, 1986. Quote, It was a quiet city council meeting Wednesday night until the fatal ending. Then a heavyset man with gray hair and glasses and wearing jeans, a parka, and a camouflage hunting cap strolled casually up to the council table. The few remaining spectators, anticipating adjournment shortly, idly glanced over at the man who shouted an epithet. And pop, recalled Greg Stark. The guy shot Ron Dupree. The man waved the small-caliber pistol at other cringing council members before approaching Mayor Edward M. King and shooting him in the forehead. As the 12 to 15 spectators scrambled in terror from the tiny city hall in this bustling community in southeastern Iowa, the man turned and shot Joanne Elizabeth Senke, another council member, who was sitting next to the mayor. The incident, which left the mayor dead and both city council members seriously wounded, has stunned this city of 7,300 people, end quote. Here's Kathy Obradovich. The mayor's father, um, Ed King's father, was among people in the community who urged Tom Vilsack to run for mayor. And I don't know how much arm twisting they had to do um, or whether Christie persuaded him to do it, but he agreed to run and he, he won the mayoral race. And that essentially launched his political career. It's 1987. President Ronald Reagan is finishing up his second term. And the political circus is descending on Iowa for the primaries. That's when Tom Vilsack first meets Joe Biden. He and Christie had supported Joe Biden's 1988 presidential run. And, of course, uh, Joe Biden did run in the Iowa caucuses here, um, spent a lot of time in Iowa. And Joe Biden doesn't forget his friends. Uh, He still has a number of people in Iowa. I can name probably half a dozen people just off the top of my head that Joe Biden keeps in touch with uh, and is friendly with and loyal to. And uh, just not just Joe Biden, by the way, Tom Vilsack, through his brother-in-law, Tom Bell, actually had a pretty pivotal connection with Hillary Clinton as well. Yes, Tom Vilsack's brother-in-law, Tom Bell, worked with Hillary Clinton back in the day. They were both aides on a congressional committee dealing with Watergate, which was the whole Nixon impeachment thing. 
so yeah, really good political connections and and kind of by happenstance. I mean, uh, not not necessarily meeting and supporting Joe Biden. That was a, clearly a, a choice that they made, but um, but kind of a twist or a happenstance uh, that that relationship with Hillary Clinton happened through his brother-in-law. Political connections that'll come in real handy as Tom Vilsack makes his way in politics. After five years as mayor of Mount Pleasant, Vilsack runs for state senate and wins. But that's not the last stop on the train. He explored running for Congress in 1996, and he decided not only would he not run, but he decided that year to actually resign his Senate seat. Uh, So he actually had a public announcement, I am going to resign, spend more time with my family, you know, the things politicians say, and, uh, and so everybody thought, okay, he's quitting. And it it surprised everybody. Um, Nobody knew for sure if there was some personal reason or political reason behind it. And uh, he changed his mind five months later (laughs) and not only decided he was going to stay in the Senate and finish out his term, but ultimately he decided to run for governor in 1998. Ah, 1998, when political ads still sounded like parodies of political ads. For Tom Vilsack, it's all about family. And in the Iowa Senate, he's led the fight for hours, for lower class sizes and higher educational standards, to give our kids the best so they can do their best, for tough laws to protect the rights and safety of Iowa patients in HMOs and nursing homes, and tax relief targeted to working families, homeowners, and farmers. You always know whose side he's on. Tom Vilsack for governor. He was sort of a breath of fresh air after 30 years of Republican governors. Um, people at that time, I think, were ready for a break. And Tom Vilsack was somebody new. Um, he seemed like a really genuine fellow. Um, and Tom Vilsack just worked, 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 worked. And uh, I, that surprisingly ended up being enough. Al Gore is actually, supposedly, the first person to tell Vilsack that he won. According to the New York Times, quoting Vilsack, Vice President Gore actually told me that I was elected. I was not watching the results. I was by myself. I was watching All the President's Men. It's a great movie. The phone rings, and it's then-Vice President Al Gore, calling to congratulate the first Democrat to be elected governor of Iowa in 30 years. Gore said, congratulations, and Vilsack asked, for what? But what does a Democratic governor of Iowa look like? I want to look at one thing specifically, which coincidentally is the thematic subject of our episode. Before he was elected, when he was in the state Senate, Vilsack voted for something called House File 519 in 1995, a bill which made it basically impossible for local governments to regulate factory farms. This is arcane, ancient, very specific to Iowa history. But here's what you need to know. This was a huge giveaway to corporate agriculture that screwed over communities, small farms, and it had a huge impact on Iowa. There's a thing called a CAFO, or Consolidated Animal Feeding Operation, which is the most horrifying kind of factory farm slaughterhouse you can imagine. The kind of thing you see a documentary on that makes you want to be a vegetarian forever. And it's not just horrifying for the animals being slaughtered. 
but for the people who live in the area as well. House File 519 opened the door to factory farms in Iowa in 1995 in a big way. It also made it harder for citizens to sue the factory farm operators who polluted their communities. In 2002, then-Governor Vilsack adopted a so-called Master Matrix to give local government a voice in the process of determining where factory farms could be located. How'd that go? Well, as of 2018, more than 97% of CAFOs were approved even when local governments objected, according to the Iowa Policy Project. And here's the thing. Vilsack knew all about factory farms. As governor, he commissioned a major 200-plus page study which found that, yeah, as you might not be surprised to learn, factory farms pollute and harm the communities in which they are located. Property values decline, quality of life diminishes, and everything smells like poop. Do Iowans want CAFOs? Probably not. But is it fair to pin all of that on Vilsack? Here's Kathy Obradovich. I think people tend to wrap Vilsack, um, and it was one of maybe one of the reservations that people had uh, when he was uh, first nominated to be USDA secretary under Obama. And again, this time that he is now going to be the secretary of agriculture under Joe Biden um, is, you know, does he have too many uh, connections with big ag? And, you know, I would say that any governor of Iowa probably would have um, those types of connections that uh, the ag industry is incredibly engaged in lobbying the legislature um, and I would say pretty successful at it as well. Um, and in a lot of ways, a lot of this ag policy ends up being bipartisan um, because uh, that is it is so central to the economy of the state. So, I mean, do I think that he had, you know, more ties to big agriculture than any any other recent Iowa governor, um, include, you know, of either party? I don't think so. Um, but that that is a central part of the economy of the state. And so I think it would be strange if he didn't have those connections. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's, in, you know, in indebted to them necessarily, or uh, that he is somehow, uh, you know, an agent of those, uh, those big ag organizations. Um, but he definitely does have those relationships. There are some economic realities here. And one of them is a kind of nimbyism, not in my backyard. Americans eat a lot of shitty food, and especially a lot of shitty meat. We did a whole episode on it last season. Who is big meat? These CAFOs, the factory farms which produce this shitty meat, have to be located somewhere, and somewhere is often places like Iowa. Is it fair to blame Vilsack? Actually, it is. He voted for it in the 1990s and, as governor, created a weak regulatory matrix that did not empower the communities who have to deal with CAFOs in their backyard. And now he's in charge of the United States Department of Agriculture. We'll be back after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. Today, we're talking about the new head of American agriculture, Tom Vilsack. I'm an Iowan by choice, 
When Christy and I sat down to decide where we were going to raise our family, we took the yellow legal pad down and we put a line down the middle, and we had two communities, her hometown and a place outside of my hometown. We wanted to raise our family in the very finest place to raise a family. We made the decision Iowa was that place. Uh, I think I'm an Iowan, uh, to be honest with you. I think uh, there is a caring and compassion of this, about this state that I think um, I reflect. Uh, I'm a small-town kind of guy. Uh, I enjoy small-town life because people there care about you. They know what's going on in your life, and they care about it. Sounds pretty great, actually. I want to bring in another Iowa guy. My name's Adam Mason. I'm the State Policy Organizing Director at Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement. Iowa CCI is a statewide grassroots community organizing group in, based in Iowa. Um, we organize everyday folks around the state for uh, farm and food justice, environmental justice, climate justice, racial justice, uh, and economic justice. That's a lot of kinds of justice. Adam Mason has been organizing around agriculture in Iowa for a long time. What does that look like? When we take on industrial agriculture here in Iowa, uh, it, it really is, you know, to, to paint a picture of it, it really is. It's, it's grandpas and grandmas. It's your, your neighbors, folks who go, you go to church with, coming together uh, to fight for what you believe in, for what's right. And, and oftentimes, the advent of a, a factory farm in your community can be a very disruptive and, and crisis-causing event. And so bringing the community together, together in that opposition can, can unite our communities. And again, it makes uh, standing up for what you believe in, uh, sometimes even engaging in, in dissent and protest, uh, as, as commonplace as apple pie. Too commonplace, maybe. Mason himself grew up near a CAFO, the factory farm atrocity situation I talked about earlier. I grew up just outside uh, a small farming community called Storm Lake in, in northwest Iowa. Um, my, I, my family had a, a small acreage. We only had about uh, 11 acres. Uh, however, previous generations of my family, um, including my grandfather, were actively engaged in farming, um, you know, growing corn and soybeans, uh, raising, you know, 50 to 100 head of hogs, sometimes 10, 20, maybe 50 cattle uh, on their farm. Growing up in a small rural community in the late 90s, I saw the business of farming changing around me. I saw, you know, family farmers, my own dad included, um, struggling to get by and, and not able to make it in, in just farming. And obviously that's a, a byproduct of, of the farm, far, farm crisis of the 80s. Um, the other thing that I saw happening around me was uh, the expansion of the factory farm industry. And so, you know, the, the small, again, rural acreage that I grew up on, uh, we lived about a half mile from a, a, a giant hog confinement that housed 5,000 hogs at, at any given point. Um, you know, it, it didn't smell good. Uh, it polluted our water. And I saw it running family farmers uh, out of business uh, across our communities. According to Adam Mason, Vilsack saw this too and seems to understand how factory farms hurt Iowa, even as he's made it way easier for these organizations to establish themselves in the state. Governor Vilsack, in his, his first race uh, in 1998 for, for governor, uh, was actually trailing in the primary and leaned in and started campaigning heavily on the factory farm issue. He recognized the, the suffering that industrial livestock operations were causing across rural Iowa. Because of that, he ended up uh, soaring in the polls, won the nomination, and ultimately became the governor of Iowa. 
again, he leveraged that power uh, into running USDA, a massive government agency that has uh, you know, influence over broad swaths of our, our economy, across broad swaths of our food and farm system. Um, I think probably every, every step of the way, he sees himself as a public servant. Uh, unfortunately, like so many of our public servants, um, you know, when, it when it comes down to it, uh, they see government as finding a role in balancing um, corporate interests with, with the interests of everyday people. Remember that House file 519 we talked about earlier? As far back as 1995, when, when Secretary Vilsack was a state senator. At the time, he was authoring a, a portion of a bill um, based on his legal background to ingrain essentially nuisance protections into an overarching agriculture omnibus bill. That bill, House File 519, back in 1995, passed and is largely viewed as opening the door to factory farms in Iowa. Uh, and again, uh, Secretary Vilsack's role at that time was authoring nuisance protections for the factory farm industry. In 2008, when Vilsack was nominated for the ag job the first time, Adam Mason was quoted in the Globe Gazette of Mason City, Iowa. Quote, Currently, corporate agriculture has a significant amount of influence within the USDA. And under Governor Vilsack's lead, you know, it's going to be vital that he stands up for family farmers and stands up against these corporate ag groups. I read that quote back to Adam. Knowing what we know now, how'd Vilsack do? Knowing what we know now, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting hearing those words read back to me because uh, I would likely be saying the exact same thing today upon his nomination. Uh, the one thing that's changed is, you know, we have the eight years uh, of tenure that he served at USDA as previous guidance. And unfortunately, during his tenure at USDA under the Obama administration, uh, things got a lot worse. Uh, we continued to see family farmers moved off of the land. We continued to see uh, power in the food and farm industry consolidated in fewer and fewer hands. We saw more mergers between seed companies, uh, chemical companies, pharmaceutical companies that all play in this in industrial ag sector. Uh, so unfortunately, my words weren't heeded and, and, and things got a little bit worse for us. So we've talked a lot about Iowa, and now I want to look at the big agency that Vilsack is in charge of, the USDA. USDA, or the United States Department of Agriculture, is one of the most far-reaching government agencies um, there is. It has say over everything uh, agriculture-related, but beyond that, it also deals with lots of other food and, and farm issues, things like food assistance programs that are administered across the country, our forestry programs, uh, fishing programs. The, the thing that ties everything under USDA's purview together would be that in some way it's, it's impacting our, our rural communities, uh, the, the food that we eat, the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, uh, as, as much as uh, the Environmental Protection Agency the USDA has capacity to, to act on these uh, environmental and climate issues as well. Here's the USDA in a video they made about themselves in 2012. 
This department was started by Abraham Lincoln. And I think it's important to reflect on how much the mission of USDA has expanded in those 150 years. Lincoln liked to refer to it as the People's Department. Still applies, absolutely. The things that go on there are enormously important. This department reaches out to its constituency far better than any other department of the U.S. government. Different than most of the departments in Washington, D.C., it's much less partisan. A lot of people have no idea that the, the U.S. Forest Service is also an agency of the USDA, have no idea. They don't know. The school lunch program is under the Department of Agriculture, the food staff Department of Agriculture, the WIC program. This department touches more people's lives than about any other department. It's a lot of stuff, but I want to look at the food system specifically. We think about the food system as everything from how how food is grown to how it's transported, how it's processed, how it gets distributed, how it gets to our tables, who it goes through along the way, and who who is really making the decisions around that. So who has control over that, who's benefiting from it, and who's being hurt. That's Navina Kana. My name is Navina Kana, and I'm the executive director and one of the founders of the Heal Food Alliance. Back to the food system. So when we think about something like the food and agriculture system, of course, it impacts every single one of us, right? So all 300 million people here in the U.S. and everyone around the world, if you have access to it, you are eating food multiple times a day. Um, And when we think about the food and agriculture system and the many different ways that it touches our lives, it's everything from the folks who are working to actually grow our food, um, to process and procure it, to transporting it and shipping it to stores and restaurants and things like that, to the people who actually prepare it in restaurants for us or um, work in a grocery store to stock it to the people who are than preparing and sharing it in our in our homes, our families together. Um, so food really touches every aspect of so many people's lives. Um, and it's not just the physical food that we're eating. It's also the the ways that it's grown. Food and agriculture have huge impacts on biodiversity, for example, or the health of our water, our air, our soil. Um, and food is our food system as it is right now is one of the biggest contributors to climate change um, with the greenhouse gas emissions that are being released. So part of part of how we think about this when we know that our communities are experiencing diet-related chronic disease and being impacted by climate chaos and that there are 20 million people who work in the food system who have five of the eight worst paying jobs in this country is that for all of us, no matter where we come from, we all want dignity. We all want to know that we and future generations can thrive on this planet. We all want to know that there's um, health and safety for us, for our families, for our communities, and that there's no part of food and agriculture that exists in isolation from the rest of it. And there's no part of our lives that isn't touched by our food and agriculture system. At the beginning of the episode, I talked about how the Department of Agriculture is at the center of this web 
that includes basically all the kinds of justice you can think of. Economic justice, racial justice, climate justice. So has the USDA historically been on the side of justice? Or has it been on the side of whatever the opposite of that is? It's unfortunate that I don't think that the U.S. Department of Agriculture has really taken its mandate to ensure that we have food and agriculture systems that really work for all people. I don't think that it's taken that seriously. And um, there's already been, you know, a lot of critique recently of the U.S. Department of Agriculture around some of the discriminatory practices and, and racist practices and things like that. But, you know, from its from its founding, we know that what was happening around that time period, the 1860s, when the USDA was formed, that's essentially, this is going to be like a little trip back in history, right? But um, when we think about the food system that we have today, that food system is built on the, the theft of land from indigenous people. And in 1862, there that land was, it was written into law that that could be redistributed to white families who were willing to farm. So there was this act called the Homestead Act that basically gave white families 160 acres of land to start farming. And the USDA was established very shortly after that. And what it's done is support mostly white farmers in, in doing that over time. The other thing that we had a choice around at that time as a country that should have happened is that black families who were freed from enslavement were promised 40 acres and a mule to be able to access land and to farm themselves. And that promise was never followed through on. Yeah, I mean, the link between agriculture and race in the United States is pretty self-evident, unfortunately. Slavery. We know that the U.S. Department of Agriculture did nothing to help support Black farmers um, and, of course, has not supported Indigenous producers um, and has been really limited in its assistance for um, other producers of color, immigrant producers, or the people of color who are working in our food system. So while the USDA, because agriculture touches race and economy and everything else, could very much sit at that juncture of economic and racial justice, like you're saying, um, but in large part, it's failed to do so over its history. And we're hoping that right now we're going to see that change. Um, but there's a lot of work to do. Pigford v. Glickman was a major class action discrimination suit brought by black farmers against the USDA, and there was a massive settlement. There was also a women and Hispanic farmers and ranchers suit and settlement. Keeps Eagle v. Vilsack is a Native American farmer and rancher class action settlement. We don't have time to get into this today, and I'm not saying that decades of discrimination are Vilsack's fault. That's America's fault. It gets really complicated, but you probably kind of get the picture. Google almost any major racial or ethnic minority in the United States and add USDA settlement to that search, and you're just about guaranteed to find something. Whenever you do find something, know that almost nothing replaces the value of land or livelihood that was lost, and settlements rarely fully compensate for a discrimination that occurred. We'll be back after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. 
Today, we're looking at newly confirmed Secretary of Agriculture for the second time, Tom Vilsack. When did Navina Khanna first encounter Secretary Vilsack? I first encountered Secretary Vilsack in the early days of his appointment with the Obama administration. And I remember very clearly being in a room with him where somebody asked him a question about whether he was going to support big corporate agriculture or if he would support independent, more sustainable agriculture. And the way that he described it, he said, I have two children. (laughs) And he talked about industry and independent agriculture as his two children that he had to take care of both. And as somebody in this room pointed out very clearly, they said, well, one of your children is a bully and it's killing the other one. And he didn't have a response to that. But one of the things that we've seen during his time that he was not Secretary of Agriculture is that Vilsack went to work for a giant dairy lobby. He made a lot of money from the dairy lobby. And one of our biggest reservations, in addition to the racist legacy that his USDA has, is that he clearly still has those ties to industry and we're concerned that he'll continue to support and subsidize big agriculture, big corporations, um, and put all of our lives at risk by doing so, by further fueling climate chaos, <laughs> the destruction of our water, our soil, our air, and more, rather than investing in producers who actually have sustainable regenerative practices. Every industry has a big, even milk. And guess who ran one of the biggest milk organizations in America in between his two stints as Secretary of Agriculture? Tom Vilsack, obviously. He was president and CEO of the Dairy Export Council. So what kind of impact does big milk have? Here's Navina Kana. One of the things that has been happening over the last several years is that independent dairy producers have been going out of business. And people like to blame the, the non-dairy industry for that, right? That's like, oh, people are drinking almond milk and soy milk and oat milk and things like that. But the reality is that it's, it's the big dairy. It's the dairy industry that is putting those small farmers out of business, small producers out of business. And it's having really significant impacts on rural economies, right? So if your family has for generations, had a business where you were on the land, you were working the land, you were in relationship with that land, you were stewarding that land, and you had cows on that land, and you were selling the the dairy from those cows to market. And then the USDA (laughs) invests in subsidizing big dairy and big industry instead. And you no longer have a market and you or you no longer can afford the prices at market because you're not getting those kinds of subsidies. You go out of business. What that means is that your family, the next generation, is not going to take up that family business anymore, right? They're probably going to go to an urban area or they're going to find some other source of income. And one of the things that we've seen in the the growing urban-rural divide in this country and particularly this divide that has gotten so dangerous, you know, 
that there's this like rise of blatant white supremacy in so many parts of this country has to do with that, right? Has to do with the fact that people's livelihoods are being ripped out from under them. And they're being ripped out from under them because of industry, because of corporate control. And they're being told that it's immigrants that are stealing their jobs or that the government is giving too much to black people or people of color. But the reality is that it's these corporations that are taking away their livelihoods and destroying the landscape where they live. And the current president didn't do that great in a lot of rural areas when he was running for office. And a lot of the reason for that is because of how this administration hasn't really addressed the needs of um, independent producers and rural families. Um, we really hope you know, that with the stimulus bill and things that we see going forward, that that will shift, but there is, um, there's been a lot of pushback against Vilsack taking this position because of that, right? Because he has been aligned with industry as opposed with, to independent producers. Like I said earlier, Vilsack and the USDA are at the intersection of all kinds of justices. There's one kind of justice we haven't gotten to yet, and that's climate justice. Vilsack is supposed to get us on the road to net zero agriculture in the United States. Well, I'm Chris Clayton. I am an ag journalist from Glenwood, Iowa, and I cover primarily agricultural policy stories at the, uh, at the moment or really for the past 15 years. Chris Clayton wrote a book, The Elephant in the Cornfield, The Politics of Agriculture and Climate Change. Vilsack and the Biden administration are, are focused on trying to reduce emissions. The goal is to be net zero in the economy by 2050. Agriculture in the United States accounts for about 10% of U.S. emissions. So what can we do to lower U.S. emissions uh, from agriculture? But also what can we do and what do we need to be focusing on to ensure that production continues to increase as we're lowering these emissions. So you've got these two basic, uh, you know, equations that have to be dealt with. We, we need to lower emissions on one side. We need to find ways to continue to increase production on the other. Vilsack will have to somehow convince America's farmers that net zero agriculture is not only possible, but essential. That's not to say all of America's farmers need convincing, but well, here's Chris Clayton. He's got a difficult job in terms of um, convincing, you know, rural America that going along and focusing on climate change as an important part of uh, of what we can be, what we can do in rural America. Um, he's got a hard time kind of creating a big umbrella buy-in for that. Um, and uh, he's going to need uh, a, a lot of uh, really young, uh, um, young, smart people to um, uh, uh, in rural America to work with and, um, and and lead the charge because it is going to be you know their generations um, that are going to um, deal with the consequences of uh, of climate change. Um, 
they're going to need to be, you know, a force in terms of uh, supporting this, whether it is, uh, you know, with uh, their dollars in terms of uh, buying products, agricultural products that, uh, you know, are uh, being grown uh, sustainably or um, helping encourage and push uh, climate smart practices in different ways. But um uh, but they need to uh, make their voices known because, um, uh, again, they are the ones that are going to live with the decisions being made now. From farms to food to existential risk, in some respects, we all have to live with the decisions that the former mayor of Mount Pleasant, Iowa, will make. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, power isn't always where you think it is. Tom Vilsack is a guy with a pretty unlikely story. And just last year, Vilsack won the lottery. No, literally. In January of 2020, Vilsack won the Powerball for $150,000. And that's kind of the story of Tom Vilsack's life. He's dealt a bad hand, and he wins. From Pittsburgh to Mount Pleasant. But when it comes to the climate crisis, we've all been dealt a bad hand. And we really need to win. Maybe Vilsack's the guy who can get us on the path to net zero. The Department of Agriculture could be a change-making agency, one that has the ability to make a difference in all of our lives. But it's also an agency which is particularly susceptible to business as usual. And if the past is any indication of what the future will be, business as usual is who Tom Vilsack is. On the next episode of Who Is, we're going on spring break. Well, no, I'm not leaving my apartment, but I am talking to one of the most influential leaders of organized labor in the United States and Canada. It's a conversation with Mary Kay Henry, president of the Service Employees International Union, or SEIU. Next week on Who Is. A sincere thank you to our guests, Chris Clayton, Agriculture Policy Editor at The Progressive Farmer. Clayton is the author of The Elephant in the Cornfield, The Politics of Agriculture and Climate Change. Navina Kana, Executive Director of the Health, Environment, Agriculture, and Labor Food Alliance, which is based in Oakland, California. Adam Mason, State Policy Director at Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement. And Kathy Obradovich, Editor of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Kathy Obradovich has been covering Iowa government and politics for more than 30 years and was previously political columnist and opinion editor for the Des Moines Register. This has been Who Is, a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, your host. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. Mona Hassan is our writer. Editing and mixing by Jordan Balaber. Studio support from Pedro Alvira and Amanda Earle. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Adakuder. And now this, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Nathan Stephanopoulos is our president. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to rate and subscribe. And if you like the show, tell your friends. 